Hey there, podcast listeners. My name is Art Wright, and I'm the pastor of Williamsburg Baptist Church in historic Williamsburg, Virginia. We're so glad that you're listening to this this bonus podcast episode that, that we are calling an intro or overview of the Bible. And today I'm delighted to welcome a very special guest and one of my closest friends, Reverend Dr. Amanda Miller. Hey, everybody. Amanda, thanks so much for joining us. Amanda is, uh, Amanda and I were in P- a PhD program together, but Amanda is a S- Associate Professor of Religion at Belmont University in Nashville, Tennessee, and is a specialist, especially in the Gospel of Luke, but she's, uh, her scholarship focuses on the intersection of the Roman Empire and the, in scripture and uh, feminist uh, understandings and interpretation of scripture. Anything else you what would want us to know about your background or sp- specific scholarly interests, Amanda? Um, I teach a lot, you know, at Belmont is a teaching college. And um, so I, I teach a lot within the whole biblical text, um, and, um, with, uh, and then particularly New Testament, I Mm -hmm. teach Greek. So I also have a little bit of a language nerd side to me. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And, uh, and I'm particularly interested in like the ethical implications of biblical scholarship. Like how does what we find um, in academic research of the biblical text um, inform and inspire how we live ethically as people in a community today? So it's not scholarship for the sake of scholarship, but specifically where the rubber meets the road, so to speak. Right, yes. I think that's a great, (laughs) great angle to take. So, well, in my mind, all of that makes you the perfect person to have this conversation with. One of the challenges that churches and pastors face week in and week out is, what do I preach on or what do I preach about this week? And so sometimes pastors will have sermon series on various topics. Sometimes churches follow a lectionary, which is a list of scriptures uh, selected, especially by denominational bodies or whatever to preach on. Sometimes preachers just kind of pick and choose from week to week and they just fly by the seat of their pants. Um, but I think what one of the things that is lost in all of these options is that we lose the sense of a broader, grand narrative of scripture. What is the movement and flow within the Bible from the beginning to end? And so in, in in my experience, so often it feels like in churches and worship on Sunday morning, we sort of parachute into a text, listen to what it says and how it's relevant to our life, but have no idea where it fits into the bigger picture. So Amanda, our church is, this is going to be our second year on the narrative lectionary. Uh, And the narrative lectionary, as you probably know, is relatively new. But the idea is that we start in Genesis in September and then trace our way through the Bible through the course of the year so that there's this logical narrative flow to our preaching that tracks along with the flow uh, of the Bible itself. And so I thought, well, let's, uh, before we jump into this in September, let's help orient our, our worship attenders and our podcast listeners to the bigger picture of scripture and then see how these particular texts of the narrative lectionary fit into the bigger picture. Um, because even with the lectionary, we can't preach from the whole Bible in a year, and so it's necessarily selective. So, so any any initial thoughts or or feedback to that, Amanda? Um, 
Yeah, one thing, like, what I really like about kind of the topic we're talking about today is um, any student who's had me for a semester or two would probably tell you that two of the, like, most important things, in my opinion, for understanding the Bible are community and context. Mm. Um, And so I, yeah, so I think this is really important to just, like, get the context of the whole picture um, of, um, of the biblical text and kind of understand that it's, it comes bound all in one book today, but it, it was a bunch of, and still is a bunch of different writings um, that are um, in conversation with each other that are in conversation with us. So yeah, so community context and conversation are my, um, <laughs> my pillars of my, my unofficial informal pillars of biblical interpretation, um, because you need to know what's around it and the context on every level. So mm-hmm. like, what are the other books in the Bible? What's the historical context? Um, what is, what is our context that we're reading out of? Mm-hmm. Um, so context on a bunch of different levels and then community and conversation. It's it, the, the, the biblical writings were always intended to be um, carried out in community. They mm-hmm. were intended to be read and discussed and interpreted in conversation in group context. So um so yeah, so that that's kind of that's that's where I'm I'd be coming from with sort of this like overarching narrative. That's great. Yeah, I think that's wonderful and I'm I'm eager to see how those sort of threads make their way through our conversation. So, well, so so the narrative lectionary this year starts with Genesis 1:1. Uh and from my own background in biblical studies, I know that the first 11 or so chapters of Genesis are what scholars call the primeval history. Is there anything that you think is particularly relevant for us to know as we we prepare to launch into the narrative lectionary starting in the beginning in, in Genesis 1-1? Um, so there's so much to say about <laughs> We, oh. This is a, this an this is an eight week series for this podcast, right? Right. right. <laughs> <laughs> um. So the this the the primeval history, as it's sometimes called, in the beginning of Genesis. Um. So I like to think of these as as stories that are being told their origin stories Mm, um -hmm. and uh um and there's stories that were being told to explore the ancient people's um understandings of what's the relationship between people and creation and the divine, and how do we live in relationship with each other, with God, with the world, and why is this all the way it is? Um, and there, um, I mean, one thing you see from the very beginning, you have two creation narratives right mm. next to each other, as right. I'm sure y'all will talk about. I'm sure it'll come up. <laughs> you know, maybe aware already, but, um, but, you know, like, the world is created in Genesis 1, and then the world is created again in Genesis two. Um, right. 
which I certainly was not taught that in Sunday school. I, I learned stories from Genesis one and Genesis two, but they were kind of like harmonized together. Right. Um, and so, um, I think it's, I think it's really helpful to kind of look at these stories for what they were trying to do and what are the, um, what are the truths that they are communicating to us? Um, you know, and were they trying to communicate, you know, a literal seven day, seven 24 hour periods creation, or were they trying to communicate that the truth that God created the world and that God, um, that God called that, that, that God, um, created humanity in a particularly unique way with the image of God. Right. And, you know, so like, what are the, what are the, um, what are the, the deep truths of the, of those stories rather than, um, trying to, trying to put a purpose on those stories that, I don't think was intended at the beginning. So one word that is helpful to me, but I think is um, threatening to some people is myth. And when I, when I say the word myth, I don't necessarily mean fake and made up. I just mean, this is not a story told to be historically factual in the way that historians think, uh, try, try to write history, so to speak. But this is, this is, and I think the creation story is a great example of this. Uh, and I, I would, you know, speak of the whole early part of Genesis in these terms, but like, you know, I, I don't know whether God created the world in six days or not. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm curious to know what science has to say, although I'm far from a specialist from that, regardless of what I believe about the historicity of Genesis or or what science has to say about creation. I believe in my heart of hearts that all of us are created with a divine image in us. Uh, I believe that, you know, humanity is, has a a place in the, in the cosmos, just like so many things do, but also maybe we do hold a unique place where we uh, are called to be stewards of all of creation as well. And, And I can believe that even if I don't necessarily think that, day one, this is what happened. Day two, this is what happened. Day three, this is what happened. Yeah. And I think that I I agree with that. Yeah. And um, I think that it's important. um, This is another thing that I often try to help my students kind of understand is like, I think the, I think the proof of that, if uh, proof isn't necessarily the right word, but it's that there is Genesis one and and Genesis two that there wasn't a need the the our ancestors and faith who kind of organically these were the traditions that were preserved they didn't feel the need to say okay which one is right genesis 1 or genesis 2 they said these both have truth in them and so they both tell us something about god and the world and humankind and so we we need both of those truths in there. Um, and so, yeah, so I think, I think that, I think just the very existence of those two stories side by side, um, helps us see some of that conversation that was going on in antiquity and invites us to continue that conversation, that's, um, yeah. continue with these questions, um, because that's, that's been preserved in, in the biblical text for us. That's a great point. Yeah. And if memory serves correctly, the story of Noah 
is similar depending on which, you know, you're reading through and Noah's taking two of each animal. And then all of a sudden he's taking seven pairs of each animal. And so, you know, red flags might fly up for us in the 21st century, like, whoa, which is it? But these authors are writing down apparently at least two separate narratives, two separate stories that would have been told about Noah uh, and his family in the ark. And they, they didn't have the same um, concerns for historical precision that we as modern folk might bring to the text. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like contradiction is a, a C word that gets <laughs> a lot. Um, and, and usually as if it is a bad thing or sometimes like depending on different groups, um, like, definition of what it means for the Bible to be divinely inspired, you sometimes get, well, it can't have contradiction. Mm -hmm. Um, So that kind of gets branded as a bad thing. Um, But I like to think more about just complexity, right? Like it's, it's, um, you know, like one place it says this, one place it says that, and those are both in there as true. And so Mm -hmm. it's not up to us to figure out what the right one is. It's up to us to, learn from learn what lessons do we need to learn from that that those are in there um yeah yeah Yeah, that's awesome that's fantastic so in primeval history genesis 1 through 11 is such a rich text we only uh or group of texts i could say we only get to dip into the the very beginning of it in the narrative lectionary but the tower of babel is also in there and this um you know, strange moment in Genesis six, where gods come down and um, have relationships with women, right? (laughs) We're still trying to unknot some of those texts to this day. Anything else you want to say about, oh, I guess, you know, uh, the first sin is mentioned in these early chapters of Genesis, which is Uh, At least scripture doesn't use it to describe the eating of the fruit from the tree, but it's actually Cain killing Abel, which is described as the first sin, which I think is fascinating. It's violence between humans. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. One of my, um, one of my Old Testament colleagues at Belmont, Mark McIntyre is actually, he's been doing this little like social media series on paradise and fall thinking if anyone find him on uh on twitter um um and i don't know if he's made them public on facebook but anyway it's been really interesting to kind of trace the idea that um of like the garden of eden incident and the eating of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that um like most Western Protestants, white Western Protestant Mm -hmm. thinking labels that as the first sin and the first, and this like quote unquote fall of humanity. Um, Mm -hmm. The biblical text doesn't call it a sin and the biblical text doesn't call it a fall. Um, And, uh, and so that's our interpretations that have kind of understood them that way, um, which doesn't necessarily mean they're wrong. um, But I think it does mean that there's a lot to be learned um, from looking at other interpretations of the Garden of Eden story and also just kind of letting the biblical text like, like reading what's actually in the biblical text, right? That as you noted, the first time sin is invoked has to do with violence against other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's, I think that's a really important thing for us to note. Um, 
that um that it's not necessarily this like obedience thing mm-hmm. obedience disobedience that gets marked as sin like by the word itself it's it's violence against other people mm-hmm. um yeah so, um so yeah so there's some uh um i i think i think that's a that's a really really important one um you know, there, there's a there's a reading that I like to use in the book. A rabbi reads the Bible, hmm. and it's it, it's an essay on the Garden of Eden incident called um, "Did They Fall or Were They Pushed?" Um, that explores this idea that was it actually a fall or hmm. was it a learning? Right? Was it a maturing that now they like gained knowledge and they weren't these like innocents anymore? And is that a bad thing or <laughs> right or just a thing right yeah. is that the way it is <laughs> right um, so uh so uh yeah another possible uh if anyone's <laughs> interested in exploring some of this more um another possible reading there um in the book a rabbi reads the bible um and i'll i'll, I'll note here too that um judaism is much better at, um, as, as a, as a tradition, it's much better at dealing with the paradoxes and the tensions in the biblical mm-hmm. text. And so I think we as, um, white, um, Protestants have a lot to learn from, um, from Judaism's comfort and willingness to engage in the richness of dialogue and complexity and mm-hmm. being comfortable with saying, having different answers. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great, all great points. The, so the, the narrative lectionary skips ahead a little bit to Genesis 21, but I think that there's a really significant mile marker in Genesis 12, where God calls Abraham and Sarah or uh, Abram and Sarai to sort of be the, the first two folks in this, in the, in the people of God, you know, is one way we could put it. God's chosen people who God calls not necessarily for the sake of their own glory or blessing, but the language of Genesis 12 is so that they might be a blessing to the world. And I, I always look back to this um, one is, you know, a, a really important pivotal moment in the Hebrew scriptures, but also in our understanding of our identity as Christians, because we would, we also, you know, I think, uh, identify with this call, um, not, not to be, you know, God's special people for our own sake, but to be a blessing to the world. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I often think that the rest of scripture is just sort of commentary on us trying to live into this call or striving to fulfill this call or failing to (laughs) live out this identity as the people of God. Would you, is that fair to say? Yeah, no, I I think that's that that beginning of Genesis 12 is one that like it's in my Genesis PowerPoint when I teach Genesis okay. <laughs> um, because I do think that it is um um yeah we think of like oh you're the chosen one as being the special oh I'm we are chosen um but it's actually a responsibility here, right? Um, um, The same kind of, I mean, that kind of echoes the Genesis one, like, yes, humankind is called created in the image of God, 
and they're given mm. responsibility to steward creation. Um, that, that sometimes gets translated as have dominion over because language is complicated. Um, right. But, uh, you know, like even having dominion over entails you are responsible for, right? That you you mm. need to care for and make sure everything runs smoothly. Um, and uh, And so I think you see that here that, any sort of like status i mean I, this, is, this is like spider-man right <laughs> with great power <laughs> and responsibility your um, husband will will love listening to this podcast yeah. later and be so proud of you <laughs> uh, to the comic book fans out there <laughs> um but yeah so i think that that call to be a blessing um as part of um just our larger vocation as the people of god is um, is one that it would behoove us to, um, give maybe more of a central place than we sometimes do. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it, um, and, and so, so much other good stuff comes up in the book of Genesis. So many s- stories of sibling rivalry is really fascinating feature of, uh, Genesis. Um, I certainly would encourage anyone to l- listening. It's a long book, but it's got such good stories in it. Anything else that you would sort of call attention to briefly in the book of Genesis before we m- move on? Sure. Um, you know, I think Genesis is just, it is long, but it's, it's like action packed, right? Yes, <laughs> it moves. The action moves in that book. <laughs> it's, uh, and it, and it, it, it makes clear from, the I say the beginning of the Bible, it's not necessarily the earliest book to have been written down in the Hebrew Bible, but it's it's where we start when we, you know, I mean it's mm-hmm. one that purports to tell us the stories of the beginnings. Um, right. and, the, um and it makes it really clear that that God's not working with perfect people, um, and that that's okay. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, I think that's kind of twofold. It, it frees us from feeling like, oh, we have to be perfect to have a relationship with God. Mm. And it also, um, you know, it, it helps us see that like God is in the midst of all the messiness with us. Like, Mm -hmm. like the patriarchs and matriarchs of Genesis, like, they got like it's massive family drama. They are they are a screwed up bunch. <laughs> but aren't we all right? Like we all have our family <laughs> drama. Um and uh, you know, and so I think it's kind of like is this is this two-sided thing. On the one hand, it's like, yep, God's here in all the messiness, like God can still work with it. And it's also it can also kind of be like like it's messy and we're gonna make mistakes. And that's not an excuse to stop trying, right? That like right. that like we we still have to work through this and try to do and be better, knowing that we're gonna keep making mistakes. And well, we're gonna <laughs> Yeah. It strikes me that there's some really beautiful moments of reconciliation in Genesis. Like mm-hmm. Isaac and Ishmael have this, you know, painful break as a result of you know, maybe some poor decisions by their parents. Uh, and, uh, but then they come together, if my memory c- serves correctly, to bury their father together. And so it's sort of a beautiful moment of reconciliation. 
uh, Jacob and Esau, I think, are the same. And then Joseph at the end of uh, the book of Genesis, you know, has been estranged from his family and a famine hits the world. And lo and behold, he, you know, extends grace upon grace. He has a little bit of fun with them in the process, but he does, you know, he does ultimately, uh, you know, uh, welcome them as his family. Yeah. I'll also put in a poll for, um, for reading through Genesis and paying particular attention to the women in the text. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's, I mean, it's a patriarchal text. The whole Bible is let's, you know, we gotta, we gotta be upfront about that. And so the women don't get, um, the women are usually in supporting roles. Um, but they, um, there there's if you stop and pay attention to them as you're reading there's a lot of really interesting stuff um and uh so and 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 genesis is is chock full of interesting women um and uh you know like like hagar is one that really comes to mind um um look up some look up some black womanist scholars mm-hmm. writing about Hagar there's so mm-hmm. much richness richness and good stuff there um um to kind of like looking at Hagar as this like how does she negotiate this power structure that is that is holding her back and also trying to like advocate for her child and survive in the wilderness um and Mm -hmm. Hagar is the first person in the bible who names God God appears to Hagar has she has it like she's in the desert desperate basically saying I'm just gonna give up and die there's nothing else I can do um and God appears to her personal appearance Hagar names God the first person in the Bible to do that um an enslaved woman an African woman um and a mother and a um you know just just so so there's there's so much good stuff um stephanie crowder mm-hmm. Milda gaffney mm-hmm. are two um women that pop to, to two scholars that pop into my mind who have done really um really great accessible essays on um on hagar um from uh, from a black womanist perspective so so you know pay attention to the women and then read some of the fabulous women who are writing about those women. That's great. (laughs) So we flip over to Exodus um, and Exodus really is, in my understanding, one of the like um, foundational moments in the life of the, the Israelite people where God uh, speaks to, to Moses. And, and one of our readings from the narrative lectionary in October is this, uh, call where where God is says you know Moses I need you to you know let my people go right um, and and then this becomes sort of like the you know a major identity marker for the Jewish people right this this exodus from Egypt really a sal- salvific moment I I think is fair to say yeah Exodus is another really fascinating book, especially you know like the first half is kind of more like the story action packed kind of section um the first couple chapters in Exodus are just fabulous that's another really good place to look for the women like yes. if you start listing all the women in those first couple chapters who do really really um <laughs> gutsy um um 
res- like like resistance to empire kind of things in those mm-hmm. couple chapters um to keep Moses alive um it's it's really amazing Shifra and Pua those, yep. <laughs> those two midwives are they are just um they are fierce and I love yes. them yeah they, they defy Pharaoh's order right to to yes. kill all of the the male babies of the the Hebrews and yeah. so they are um yeah remarkable uh uh players in the in the history of salvation Yes. Yeah. And they, and it's fascinating how they do it also. Um, you know, they, uh, they, um, they, they're, they're kind of like, you know, like they're midwives, their whole job is to bring children and mothers safely through labor and childbirth. Um, and, uh, and, Pharaoh asks them to completely go against their calling and instead bring death. And their whole point is life, right? Um, and uh, new life. Um, and uh, um, and they're like, they're just like, no, like, hell no, we're not going to do that. That's not what we do. <laughs> um, and then also they they use they use Pharaoh's prejudice against him right they use his racism against him by being like oh these hebrew women are different they they give birth so quickly that we can't get there in time um and so and and that like and pharaoh's like oh yeah okay i believe that because like he he reviews them as other and it makes sense mm-hmm. that they're not like other women um and so yeah so you just see and again like Shifra and Pua get just like a couple, a couple verses, a little bit piece of the story. And then the rest of the book is about Moses, but, and, and the people, but, um, but if you stop, if, if you stop and spend a little bit of time with them, like they're badass, they're badass women, you know? Um, um, so, uh, so yeah, so just another great place. Um, the other thing I was going to say about Exodus in general is you mentioned that it does kind of become this like very like um, iconic moment within kind of the story of God and God's people. Um, and, uh, and so I think, it, I think it's a, the Exodus is a really interesting one also to kind of consider what we call the history of interpretation, mm. like how the Exodus imagery is invoked throughout the rest of the, of the Hebrew Bible, how it's invoked in the new Testament. And then you can keep going and see how it's invoked by readers and interpreters throughout more recent history. Um, mm. um, and, and kind of looking at, looking at the conversation there and the community and the context, you mm-hmm. know, um, the, the white European co- colonizers of the United States viewed themselves as kind of this new Israel on an exodus from Europe, um, to the, to the promised land, to the promised land. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the Africans that they brought over and enslaved, also, the Exodus was and is a pivotal image for those enslaved Africans and their de- and their 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 black descendants today as this kind of like like I would argue a much much closer um interpretation of being actual enslaved people that 
um, and claiming the claiming the identity that God cares about us and God wants us to be free and that God doesn't want us to be enslaved. Right. Well, and one of the things that I have often encouraged students or congregation members is, you know, think about who you relate to most in the scripture text. And all of us want to put ourselves in the place of God's people, but you know, might it be appropriate for white Christians to put themselves in the place of Pharaoh? Uh, and, you know, in this particular narrative, it's it's very uncomfortable, but, you know, I I hear you saying that, you know, the, as much as we want to see ourselves in the Israelites, that, that might not be the closest narrative analogy to, to who we have been historically. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I think that it's not to say that we can't identify at all with the Hebrews, right. you know, kind of like liberation from things that, um, things that, you know, we feel keep us trapped, but there needs to be the acknowledgement that also we are Pharaoh in this story. Yes. <laughs> like, a, like right. and that's, that's why it's like, that's why the biblical text is so rich and it's still speaking to it, that these stories are still speaking to us and teaching us things 3000 years later is because there's not just one right way to understand it. There's a lot of lenses to look at it and a lot of, um, a lot of insight for us to gain from it. Um, I'm a musician as well. I was a music major in college. And so I have always had particular interest in the songs in the biblical. Uh Um, and, uh, um, there's the song of Miriam and Moses in Exodus. Um, um, and so I also teach at Belmont in Nashville, music city. We have a lot of teachers, a lot of students interested in going into the music business, so um, one thing that we sometimes do is, um, so the song of the sea or the song of Moses and Miriam is a victory song sung by the Israelites right after they've, they've escaped. They're on the other side of the Red Sea. The Red Sea has collapsed on top of all the Egyptian soldiers and killed them all. Um, and they sing a victory song because they got released from slavery, which, yeah, that's good. I'm glad. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> And the Egyptian people have had their firstborns killed and suffered plagues. And all of these soldiers were just drowned because their commander was, you know, stubborn and corrupt. Um, There's also the whole thing about how, like, in some places in Exodus, it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. But that's Mm -hmm. a much bigger question to, uh, to get into. But so sometimes I have my students try to write the song of the sea from the opposite side of the Mm. Red Sea. Mm. What would the Egyptians be singing? Wow. Um, And so just kind of thinking about, you know, thinking about the other side of the story um, is something that I think is productive and rich and insightful with almost all these biblical texts. I'd love that. I was hoping you'd mention that song, by the way. (laughs) So thanks for bringing it up. Yeah, it does. Uh, and the, the lectionary, this is the narrative lectionary is a four year cycle. So, uh, it, you know, this, this idea that scripture is polyvalent, that there's no one meaning, and we can't, you know, solve what a text means once and for all guarantees that four years from now, I don't have to just pull out the same sermon, I can preach a different sermon, and, you know, maybe flip the script somehow, or maybe, you know, for me right now, there is a certain resonance between the exodus and the pandemic, you know, and uh, 
I, I don't know if I'll, you know, tie that in when I preach on it in the fall, but <laughs> we're trying to move beyond this thing. And some of us are like, no, I want to go back. It was nicer in Egypt. And some of us are like, no, let's keep going forward. And I don't know. <laughs> I feel like there's something there. <laughs> oh. Yeah, that's the whole second half of Exodus is, you know, okay, now we're free and we have to figure out how the heck do we live when we're not enslaved? Um, How do we live together? How do we make, how do we make the rules? Um, I'll mention something that's just kind of brought it up for me. Um, The, you know, the 10 commandments are also in the second half of Exodus. Um, very, uh, you know, obviously pretty, pretty pivotal in, um, in the biblical text and in, um, you know, they're, they're invoked in a lot of the culture wars frequently. Um, um, and, uh, one thing that I, I have a lot, you know, I've taught about the 10 commandments lots of times. There's lots of angles we could take on them. Um, but, um, one thing that I think is particularly interesting is um, about the Ten Commandments and kind of looking at okay, how do we live now that we aren't enslaved anymore? How do we how do we move forward? Mm-hmm. What it, at least it was familiar back in Egypt, right? <laughs> like you know, right. there's that impulse to go back to the familiar, even if it's not, um, even if it's hard to grow and move forward. Um, um, and I heard I, um, my church pastor did a sermon on the Ten Commandments one time that talked about how we think of like commandments as like you know thou shalt not do this mm-hmm. limitations that they that are put on us. Um, but in some ways, for a people who had been previously enslaved, having the freedom to follow your com- the commandments and the rules of your community that you all kind of agreed to put in place and live by was actually liberating. Mm. Um, You know, people who were enslaved were generally at the, uh, this is a, this is a difficult topic. So I'll, I'll give kind of a quick content warning. Um, um, but people who were enslaved were generally at the sexual disposal of the people who um who, who were enslaving them yeah. and um so if you were enslaved you didn't have the you didn't have the freedom to be faithful to your spouse if you chose if mm. that's how you chose to be if if you wanted to be faithful your, to your spouse you didn't really have the autonomy to decide that mm-hmm. the person enslaving you didn't want you to um you know and mm-hmm. so or even you know to take the honor the sabbath day right that's you know to 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 have a day where you don't work um where you right. spend your family and your community and your friends like though so in some ways these commandments are in some ways liberating because it's saying we're setting our own Hmm. community standards and we have the freedom to follow them. Um, Which I think is particular, you know, well, you mentioned the pandemic, right? Like it's all where, you know, it, in this particular time with the Delta variant rising, there's all kinds of talk about, should there be more mask requirements? Should there be lockdowns? Should different organizations have vaccination requirements? Is that okay? Mm -hmm. Is that infringing on our liberties, right? Um, 
or is it liberating that we have the option to ah. protect our community, right? Is that the freedom yeah. that, that I can wear a mask to keep my kids and your kids safe, right? Or the, and the people in my community that can't or haven't gotten vaccinated yet, right? That kind of looking at these commandments as communal, like, mm. you know, the trying to figure out, okay, how do we live together? What do mm-hmm. we want to be as a people? Um, and how to, how do we be a, ble- you know, kind of going back to the Genesis one, right? How do we be a blessing to, um, a blessing to other nations and how do we live together in community? Like those are, those are really relevant questions and a very different frame to put the, um, the, te- the commandments in, right. Instead of like, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, right? Yeah. Um, as much as like, you have the freedom to choose to not kill, right? I, I think that's wonderful. And I do, so you're, you know, I think so often when we read scripture, especially in a, a Western context, this is like, you know, God's word for me, individual, like, how does God want me to live? I shouldn't kill, I shouldn't, you know, blah, blah, blah. But really, this is, you know, when we step back and look at the context, it is about community and how do we as the people of God want to live uh, on the other side of captivity now that we're, you know, going to. And so it, you know, and and that's one of the wonderful things about reading scripture and worship is that we're reading it in community. And it's, it, yes, may speak to us as individuals, but it also speaks to to us as a community of faith too. And so that, that's a good reminder that I'm hearing from what you're saying too. Yeah. Well, we can put on our, we can put on our Greek language nerd hats here too for a minute. <laughs> um, get them on there. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, um, the, one of my biggest regrets about English is that we do not have a second person plural. Mm-hmm. Oh we yeah. You to talk about like you art or we mm-hmm. use it to say you, Williamsburg Baptist Church, to talk about the whole congregation. And there's no differentiation in English. Um, I am not from the South originally. I am from South Dakota. Um, we do not use y'all there, but I've lived <laughs> between Richmond and Nashville. I've now lived in the South for 15 years, and I am a full adopter of y'all um, because I. It, it really makes a difference. Yeah. There's actually... Here's a here's a lighthearted um, recommend resource recommendation for you. There is a y'all version of the Bible online, oh. <laughs> um, and it takes whatever English translation you usually use, and so both ancient Hebrew and ancient Greek have different words when it's you plural than they right. do y'all when it's y'all than they do when it's you individual and right. so this this website puts y'all in everywhere that the hebrew or greek has a second person <laughs> it's actually really useful for us english speakers particularly us american english speakers who live in a pretty individually focused society to realize how many of those yous that we read in our english bibles are actually y'alls mm-hmm that's your that, that that's your that's your website. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> it, it is, and you know, yeah. So much of the New Testament we read is, you know, singular, singular. You, you. I'm even thinking of like the story of Nicodemus, but you know, it, it's it's hidden behind the the English, but it's, it's so many of those texts are y'all. So, 
so let's skip the narrative lectionary skips Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, which are important texts in their own right. Also texts that if you, you know, for a lot of people, when they start reading scripture, beginning to end, they sort of fall off the horse, uh, either when they get to the, you know, second half of Exodus or to Leviticus or whatever, uh, or not. <laughs> They're just hard to sit down and kind of crank through because it's not as action packed anymore. And it is law uh torah is so foundational and and uh and critical to uh israelite understanding of who who they are as the people of god um but certainly some rich stories in there as well so but then we 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 and as we're moving through scripture we move into what i would think of as history books right we get joshua judges ruth this is um when when um these people move from they've moved from Egypt they've wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and now now they move into the 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 promised land and conquer the promised land and we talked about that a, a few weeks ago in worship and it again raises some really troubling questions about you know and you alluded to this a little bit earlier with like you know white european conquerors uh the book of joshua has a lot to do with conquest and genocide uh sort of make you know push the um the native people out or, or kill them all and make way for God's people. Um, any, anything, you know, we pick back up in first Samuel, but anything before first Samuel that you would want to call attention to. So Joshua and judges are really difficult books for me, um, to teach. Um, I'm not sure. I I don't preach on a weekly basis. I preach more occasionally. Um, so I don't, I'm pretty sure I haven't ever preached on either of those texts. Um, they're even hard to teach, um, because like, it's just straight up genocide and, Mm -hmm. you know, in judges in particular, you've got sexual, a lot of sexual violence, um, you know, in judges 11, you have, um, a father sacrificing his daughter, um, um, to the God of Israel, not to one of those like terrible Canaanite gods. (laughs) Right. Um, and so they're they're hard books and they're in the canon right and so Mm. the temptation is to is to um is to jump over them um as we see with the narrative lectionary because they are right and i think we have a responsibility to be honest about them that they're in there um you know so i think two things I would say, um, just kind of like overall, cause I know we don't, we don't want to spend a ton of time on this, but, um, one thing I would say is like, so often in, um, Protestant Christianity, we do call them the historical books, mm, right? Mm-hmm. Or the, the Deuteronomistic history, if you want to get fancy as a Scott with a, with a, with a scholarly term, um, I think it's interesting that in the Jewish Tanakh, they call them the former prophets. And I, that can kind of help us look at them with a little bit of a different lens, right? Prophecy is messages that God wants to communicate to the people, right? A prophet a prophet in the Hebrew Bible was 
someone who who was the mediator of God's messages to the people and the people's messages back to God. Um, and so if we look at these as these books as the former prophets, that can gives us a little bit more leeway, I think, to like versus like history is a kind of a loaded term for us today, you know, because it's so it's a different kind of like idea of history than the ancient world mm-hmm. understood history. Um and so kind of looking at them as prophecy, it's like, okay, what is the message that I need to hear from this, right? Rather than this is history and exactly how it happened. Um, um, so that, that's one thing that I think just like using that different lens to see if that sheds any different light on these yeah. books. Um, and then the other thing is like, you know, it's, wrestling with the question of the divine violence as portrayed in scripture is an important thing for us to wrestle with. Um, Sometimes the stereotype is that that's all the, like the nasty old Testament stuff. And then we get to the new Testament and God is love and everything, but it's in both of them. them. Violence is in both and love is in both. Yes. Yeah. And so, um, so that's a question that we need to wrestle with. And, you know, I mentioned very, you know, very early on in the introduction that I'm very, like, I care a lot about the ethical implications of our biblical interpretations. And so I think when we are wrestling with these texts, I think it's really important to think about, um, like, okay, am I going to say, well, like, it's terrible that we had to, it's terrible that the Israelites had to destroy all the people in Canaan, but they had to have the promised land. Mm-hmm. Like, ethically, how do we feel about that? Right. right? Like, you right. know, ethically, what has happened in groups that espouse that interpretation? Right. We had Native American genocide because of that. Right. Um, just, in the name of God. Right. Um, and so, like, like. So let's think carefully what, before we kind of like come off with, you know, just like a, an explanation to explain it away. Let's think carefully about the ethical implications of that. Yeah. Um, so kind of thinking about those different explanations that are often given for these difficult texts. Um, and, you know, maybe we need another explanation yeah. <laughs> or, or maybe we need to not try to explain them away. Right. Um, you know, um, so I, we've been during our summer series, I preached on from Judges twice and Joshua once we hit the the story of Deborah um, in the book of Judges, which was marvelous text. Uh, then uh, Samson and Delilah. <laughs> I got to say, I got about halfway through that story, that sermon. And I was thinking to myself, oh, my gosh, this is terrible. It's so depressing because it's just this like cycle of violent revenge and retribution. And like, it's, you know, like an eye for an eye magnified a hundredfold. But the, one of the things that I wrestled with as pastor with in Joshua, the Joshua in the battle of Jericho, you know, um, I know a number of scholars wrestle with, you mentioned, you know, the history is is that really historical? Did it really happen this way? Or is it possible that this story was told from a particular viewpoint to sort of prop up a political perspective within um, certain quarters of um, uh, Israelite life? Um, and, you know, I didn't, 
I didn't go into a great detail for some different scholarly perspectives on that in my sermon, although called attention to it and called attention to the horrors of genocide. But, um, you know, for me at the end of the day, it's, it's hard for me to believe that God commanded genocide. And I don't, you know, in my heart of hearts, I, I don't think for a second that God did. And so, you know, if it did happen historically that day, I think that they must have written God into the story to justify violent slaughter of a whole group of people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's where I am too. I don't, you know, um, one, uh, one, I am blanking on his name right now, Um, but he's a professor at Messiah College. He's a Hebrew Bible scholar, Um, and he writes a lot about the problem of the question of divine violence, um, specifically in the Hebrew Bible, since that's where his area of expertise is. Um, And he, you know, he kind of writes, he's like, killing babies is never okay right and so like 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 I can't like he's like like there's no way that God would command like babies and children to be killed um and so yeah you know kind of obviously obviously that's like the bare minimum right but you know there are many other like but but kind of like looking at like yeah like I I don't I don't think that I can go with God literally commanded that historically commanded that um and then you know and then one other thing that's woven throughout all of what we're talking about is what does it mean for the bible to be divinely inspired and how you know and so like a lot of times when i say things like that in classes you know students are like but it's in the bible and this is what i believe about the bible being divinely inspired and you know and so that's you have to wrestle with all of these things right you know um and uh you know my take on the Bible as authoritative and divinely inspired allows for that, allows for that to not historically be that God commanded those genocides, but that um, that if they did happen in real life, that this was an explanation, as you mentioned, kind of later put on to justify them. I mean, we know that we do that, right? We, you know, people have done that throughout history to try, like, to use the, use a divine kind of, like, whatever deity they have to try to give authority to what they want to do. Um, And uh, so we, we know people do that. And so that, you know, we know we as human societies do that and continue to do that, um, which that's the real taking the Lord's name in vain to me in my book. Um, You know, I grew up, I grew up being told that that meant like swear words and cussing. um, But, uh, but yeah, for me, the real taking the Lord's name in vain is, you know, using God's name to justify, uh, justify violence and genocide. So. Right. That's a great point. Amanda, I wanted to to say one thing by way of response to your comments about inspiration, which I loved, and we could do a whole series on it, or at least a whole podcast on inspiration. One thing that I always think about when I think about biblical inspiration is, you know, yes, it's one thing to believe that the Bible was inspired then, but I, in my heart of hearts, have to believe that some sort of inspiration happens now through the Holy Spirit because, you know, the Bible can be as inspired as you want it to be, you know, in a thousand BC or, you know, you know, when Paul was writing, 
uh, you know, in the 50s. But if no inspiration happens on Sunday morning or, you know, whenever reading the Bible today, all is for naught. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, that's where the community side of it comes right. in, right? Like, yeah. um, you know, I one thing, one of my other, like, kind of, like, teaching refrains is like that's why the bible is called the living word of god right that like it is active and the spirit is active and we're still learning things about people and um and god and each other and being in community um that uh um yeah that it's it's one important source of wisdom from a christian faith perspective um, and there's the spirit and there's right. and there's science and research and there's right. our experiences, right? That's the, the Wesleyan quadrilateral, <laughs> um, another, another thing to go Google for yourself. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah. yeah, it's come up at least once since I've been at Williamsburg Baptist. So that's a great, a great plug for the Wesleyan quadrilateral. Yeah. And I think it's scary for a lot of people to think, you know, what if we interpret things now differently than we used to? And I, you know, I'm thinking in particular about sexuality, for example, like, you know, oh, we've always interpreted this way, or we've always thought this. And it's scary to think, oh, you know, but I, I have to believe again that, you know, the Holy Spirit is, is dynamic and active and calling us to new and deeper ways of understanding and, uh, how God is calling us to be people of faith in the world. And uh, so anyway, I, I try to remind myself that, and, you know, it, it, I think it's a helpful way to think about inspiration. Yes. Yeah. 100%. I don't know if y'all use the, um, the new interpreters study Bible at all. If that's a like Bible that any of um, any of your parishioners mm-hmm. have or use at all, but it has um, a really, a couple of really great articles in the back that look at um, that are, that look at like different ways throughout mm-hmm. Christian history that we have defined divine inspiration of scripture and the authority of the Bible. Um, so sometimes it helps to just know the history that you know like right that that the you know like the inerrancy of biblical like you know that like our verbal but plenary verbal inspiration if you you ever you know hear those words thrown around they're popular in american evangelical white american evangelicalism um but they're pretty recent right that's not how christian that's not how every church has defined inspiration divine scripture for 2000 years like it's just not um so learning the history and the different ways that we can understand inspiration of scripture is really um really important and helpful in kind of and each of us is going to come to a slightly different place on that it's just helpful to know okay, here's where I'm coming from. Where are you coming from? Right. And understand that more fully when we have these, you know, wrestlings and discussions. That is such a Baptist thing of you to say too. (laughs) We're each going to come to different understandings of this. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you know, this, I'll, 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 I'll be brief about this, but an image that I use for um, biblical interpretation to send us way back to Genesis is um, Jacob wrestling with God in, um, I'm not, I'm 
blanking on even the chapter. Yeah, me too. Twenty-three. Um, we go. That's a great. Yeah. Yeah, somewhere around there. Um, but uh, that like you wrestle and it's hard, and sometimes you get injured, and you get a blessing, right? Yeah. Encounter with God, right? Like so, kind of just like. Right that image of wrestling with God, wrestling with scripture, um, as, uh, as kind of your guiding, a guiding image for, um, for engaging with the biblical text, um, has been, has been really effective for, um, for a lot of my students and, um, I think can be helpful in churches as well. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you for that great thought. So, so we were talking about Joshua Judges and Ruth, um, we we pick up with first and second Samuel, first and second Kings. Uh, this is where um, uh, in the text that we have, God calls Samuel, uh, and then we we see the beginnings of the monarchy, where the first kings of Israel are chosen, and Saul, David, Solomon are some of the big names, uh, and and certainly. King David becomes a sort of monumental figure, uh, really in all of scripture, you know, so much so that even the New Testament is oriented towards, uh, you know, Jesus uh, being this, you know, Messiah figure cast in the image of David. Or, or um, So, but then um, Solomon, his heir, builds the temple, the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, which is significant. Um I'm I'm just sort of painting in broad brushstrokes the history here, but after Solomon, the the Israelite kingdom, the Jewish kingdom is divided into two, and there's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. So northern kingdom of Israel and southern kingdom of Judah, and that is is something that's relevant really for the rest of the the Hebrew scriptures or the Old Testament. Uh, and two dates that I kind of keep circling back to whenever I teach on the Bible for understanding the, the Old Testament context, 722 BC or BCE, when the Assyrian uh, empire conquers the Northern kingdom, and then 586, 587, 586, depending on who you talk to, is when the Babylonian empire comes in, they, you know, they, they gobble up Assyria, and then they gobble up the Southern kingdom of Judah, and they destroy the temple. And both of these are sort of like watershed moments in, in scripture. And so much of the prophets, especially circles around these two pivotal moments, because it raises such hard theological questions, like how could God allow that to happen to us as God's chosen people? You know, did God cause this? Did we cause this? Where is God now? Uh, what does it mean to be the people of God moving forward uh, if we don't have a temple, for example? Yeah, yeah the the destruction of the temple um, by the Babylonians in the um, in the Hebrew Bible, and then the second temple is destroyed by the Roman Empire in the year seventy. Right. CE um and both and and that's another like their identity crises Mm -hmm. for the faith communities that um that are the 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 groups that are following the god of abraham and sarah um right are um it's an identity crisis because it's like okay if we don't have jerusalem we don't have our land we don't have our temple in jerusalem who are we? What does it mean to follow this God now? Um, so yeah, so you see the, those are really important um, 
identity crises in both the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament period. Um, and so reading the biblical texts, reading the, reading the biblical books through that lens of that identity crisis is, um, is an important con- context clue. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, uh, a lot of, like you mentioned, again, the, these books, Samuel Kings, that we call sometimes the historical books, or we call them the former prophets in, um, in the Jewish canon, the Tanakh. Um, um, these are, these are, um, a lot of the written final, like written copies of these books that came down or not copies, but written versions of these books mm. that have come down to us are from this period, are part mm. of the process of figuring out this identity crisis. As you kind of mentioned, like, why did this bad thing happen to us? This like really terrible, bad thing happened to our whole <laughs> country and people, um, um, you know, theodicy or fancy, uh, you know, your, fa- your fancy theological word for the day, the question of why would a fair God, a just God allow bad things to happen right. to good people or to me, uh, to us, right. uh, <laughs> you know, to, to y'all. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <Or us. laughs> um, um, and so the answer that we do see from one, one of the major answers that we see carrying pretty consistently through Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, and in a lot of the, of the, um, what they call the latter prophets or the writing prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and mm-hmm. Micah. Um, one of the big answers is that you messed up somehow, right? You <laughs> weren't worshiping, you weren't following God's commandments, you weren't being faithful. And that's why God had to allow, or that's why God had to cause this bad thing to happen. Um, so in a lot of biblical scholarship, you'll hear that called the Deuteronomistic point of view, mm-hmm. um, that, that, bad things happen because as because we did something to cause it um or to earn it and this um, is a particular theological perspective within writings of the hebrew scriptures yes. yeah. yeah um and uh um in some ways it's kind of like the biblical ver- or a biblical version of karma right you know like you um, right. you know like you put bad stuff out in the universe, you receive bad stuff back. Um, obviously with a monotheistic um divine right. spin on it. But um and so you see that, and so so that is one of the answers that people were trying out during this identity crisis after Jerusalem and the temple are destroyed. Right. And the leaders have been have been kind of sent into exile in Babylon. The non-elites are just kind of left now under Babylon's control in the land of Israel and Judah and trying to figure out, okay, what do we do? Um, And uh, so that's one of the questions that, or that's one of the answers Mm -hmm. is proposed. Um, But this is, I'll come back to my conversation, right? My conversation. There is conversation within the biblical text itself, because there are other answers when you get to, um, 
you know, we were looking at the, the narrative lectionary for this year. And one piece of the Hebrew Bible that's missing from this year for is the wisdom literature mm-hmm. and the writings. So Psalms and Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and Job. Um, and, uh, and so the books that are, the, this dude are in a mystic point of view is looking a lot at kind of like, the history of the people and the covenant, like trying to understand things in the terms of the covenants that God has made with different mm-hmm. Israelite people and different leaders. Um, the wisdom literature tends to kind of look at, look at the, look at the world mm-hmm. and try to like, so, and try to say, okay, what answers do we get from this? And one of the things that I love about the wisdom literature is it is in conversation with the deuteronomistic point of view um that Mm -hmm. that dominates a lot of the rest of the scripture and it's it's saying i mean the ecclesiastes like the author of ecclesiastes just like says this like he says i look around and i see bad people prospering and i see good people struggling like this doesn't work in real life right like it's not like like your 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 answer to why bad things happen, like does not always, it's just not true all the time. Right. Um, and I was so, going to mention that exact text from <laughs> Ecclesiastes. I mean, Job, the whole book is like a refutation of, of, of that idea. Right. Oh, like, Job is perfect and bad, yeah. tons of bad things happen. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> and so, um, yeah, so you, you have this, this fascinating conversation within the biblical text. Um, and I, I'm probably repeating myself a little bit, but um, that dialogue from one perspective, it can kind of be like, what are you telling me? There's contradiction in the biblical text. Like what, how do I know what to believe? That's one that, that is, and I get that reaction. I 100% yeah. understand it. Another way of looking at it is saying, like, oh, God is comfortable with us wrestling, mm. struggling, and asking the hard questions, mm. and trying out an answer, and then saying, okay, let me, you know, let me test the data, right? Let me test this hypothesis. Let's, let me look around at the real world and see, is this true? Right. And what do I discover from that, right? Um, you know, and so it, it that, that's another, I mean... This isn't like a direct thing, but like one of like we need to listen to like we need to learn, right? Science is not like here's the one answer. It's this is you know this has been coming up with the pandemic, right? It's done. Right. It's a it's a process of learning more and more, and I love that that is preserved for us within the biblical canon, hmm. right? That 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 process is is in the biblical canon of saying, okay, here's one possible answer to this identity crisis. What do we think about that? How does it work out? And then, and okay, well, let, what about this one? And maybe this one sometimes and this one other times, and maybe it's a combination of all of them, right? right? Like, like that complexity is embraced by the canon. Um, I, I love that, you know, and I, I even think, you know, the question of theodicy, maybe it so happens that there is no good answer. Uh, and scripture doesn't ultimately give us one, one answer for that reason, because there is just no good answer and we're left, uh, in the tension of it all. And, uh, 
I, I love that idea. I do. I've often thought, you know, there, there are different voices within scripture. That's what I hear you saying, different authors and different um, perspectives speaking at different times and from, from different texts. And sometimes within the same text, it's dialogical and we, we can fear that we can try to harmonize the different perspectives and say, no, scripture just has this one voice, or we can say, actually, there's an invitation into the dialogue here. And I, I think that is, you know, that speaks to me to a God who uh, has an awful lot of faith and trust in humanity to join in that dialogue. And ultimately, I think that being a participant in that dialogue leads us deeper into wisdom. I think that's part of the part of the deal, part of the goal. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'll sometimes have students that um, have been taught that like asking questions, it means your faith isn't strong enough. Um, And I fully, fully believe that asking questions is how we deepen our faith. It's how we deepen our relationship. It's how we come to a fuller understanding. It's how we learn. Um, And so for me, asking questions, including, and maybe even especially the hard questions is entering into that sacred conversation, Mm. that holy dialogue that we have examples of laid out for us in the biblical text. Mm -hmm. Um, And, um, and entering into that is, one of the most faithful things we can do. I agree. You know, I've done some teaching on spirituality in my own background and thinking about stages of faith that we go through in our lives. Asking questions can be a sign of deepening spiritual maturity. It's, it's a painful process often. And a lot of times folks are going through it in college. So you are sort of have a front row seat to that. I imagine for a lot of students as they, they do think, and rethink this inherited faith that they've received from their childhood church. And, you know, as they wrestle with these questions, they might arrive at some of the same answers that their church gave them, but they will be their answers uh, and it will be fully their own faith. And in my mind, that's a sign of, you know, a maturation and towards a deeper um, spirituality and deep, deeper place of faith. Yes. So, yeah. yeah. Well, so, so we do, this is such a great conversation. I'm so grateful for, you know, the myriad ways that this is spiraling out so far. I hope it gets a million hits on YouTube or on our podcast channel. <laughs> what do we need to know about prophets? Because we get Amos uh, and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. They, the prophets, each year in the narrative lectionary, the fall is oriented towards the old Testament and then the spring is oriented towards the new Testament. And we usually get a pretty heavy dose of the prophets in Advent. And then with Christmas, that's when the narrative lectionary logically flips over to Jesus, the birth of Jesus in the new Testament. And, um, but, but is is there anything that you think that we should know about the prophets? We've, we've hinted at a a little bit already, but what is a prophet and, you know, do they predict the future or how do we need to rethink them? Yeah. So, um, language is ever changing, ever organic, you know, way back at the beginning of part one, you mentioned the word myth which can sometimes, you know, like you got like Mythbusters, like something that isn't true, right? Or you have this this story that is told to explain something, right? Right. 
there's truth in it, but it's not necessarily factually true. Right. Um, I think you have a similar thing with prophecy, right? So mm-hmm. today in like, just like normal everyday American English prophecy is um, predicting the future. Mm. Um not so much in the biblical term prophet. Um, Sometimes biblical prophets did talk about something that would happen in the future, but their main purpose was to, um, to be a mediator between God and the people. Mm -hmm. So prophets in Hebrew prophet prophecy involved speaking God's message to the people and and kind of being an advocate and messenger for the people to God. Um, And it was, even when it was talking about something that would happen in the future, Mm. it had goals for the present, right? The the point was to commentate on the present event and to spur, oftentimes to spur changed behavior in the present. There's an ethical dimension, right? To to get back to your, yeah. Yes, there's a very strong ethical dimension to prophets. Um, mm-hmm. And um, another thing that I think is sometimes helpful to think about with prophets is to some extent, prophets who we hear most about the writing prophets during the monarchy and then after the and then and then after the um the Assyrian and the Babylonian conquest of the Israelite kingdoms. So most of the like named Hebrew prophets are from that time period. Mm-hmm. Um and so to some extent prophets are a little bit of a check and balance to power mm-hmm. of the monarchy. Um so Nathan the prophet is kind of like your your kind of like golden example of that the way he kept king david accountable when david messed up and david messed up a lot um you know um nathan, <laughs> nathan was nathan what one of nathan's big jobs was keeping David accountable, right? He told the famous parable about the man with the one lamb and the rich man who had many lambs. And, um, you know, and David's like that terrible rich man, how could he take that one lamb that the poor man had? And, you know, Nathan's like, that's you, dude. (laughs) (laughs) And referring to the uh, incident where David um, rapes Bathsheba and kills her, her husband when it turns out that she's pregnant. Um, um so uh um so so there's so the prophets also are kind of like this this sort of like keep the monarchy accountable um as well um particularly the prophets that are recorded in that have their writings preserved um in the biblical text um so um and the prophets, the named prophets, or what the Tanakh calls the latter prophets. So you've got the big ones, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. And then you have the 12 minor prophets, mm-hmm. um, which I sometimes jokingly refer to as all those weird names at the end of the Old Testament. Oh, Ob- Obadiah, Malachi, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, and so um, those, pro- the, the writing prophets, um are really focused on what sounds like a religious thing. They're focused on proper worship of Yahweh. Hmm. If we actually read the prophets, we'll see that that is not 
proper worship of, of, of the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, is not just about ritual. It is about, it does include ritual or what we'd call quote unquote religion, but, um, so not worshiping other gods besides the, the God of Israel is one big thing that the prophets talk about. But just as much, I think they talk about ethical treatment, what we mm. would call justice issues today. Right. They, they talk about, they talk about, um, ethical business practices right they talk about they they i mentioned keeping the keeping the monarchy accountable to put the needs of the people and not just it be like an absolute power grab um um you know not taxing the people too much um and uh um you know paying fair wages making sure the poor are taken care of um and so, so you have this, you have it, it, when you really study the prophets, it becomes clear that number one, it's not about the future hmm. primarily, it's commentary on the present. And it's about, yes, worshiping Yahweh as far as ritual goes, but also worshiping Yahweh um, through your actions, right? How you treat other people around you, um, how you, how you treat the y'all, not just yeah. the that's the meme that's that's so helpful i i'm thinking of a couple things you know there's this one sort of like damning text and you know that says i hate your festivals i hate your religious offerings uh you know and 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 so we hear this you know refrain through as amos you know let justice roll down like waters i care a lot more about justice than the ways in which you are trying to go through all the right motions of religious practices. Uh, and, and then we hear this, you know, you've forgotten about the poor or the orphans or the widows or the stranger or foreigner in your land. Um, I, I, I'm also thinking about Ezekiel where there's this image of shepherds uh, and sheep and the shepherds are neglecting the sheep. Uh, and Jesus picks up on that language too in the gospel of John uh, where the the ones that are supposed to be taking care of the flock, you know, whether kings or religious and political elite figures are, are neglecting their responsibilities, um, certainly continues to speak to us today. Yes, definitely, definitely. And one thing that I'll say, particularly with the way the narrative lectionary is set up, where you get to the prophets in Advent, um, one thing to be cautious of is... Um, to it's really important to not just jump to Jesus in the yeah it's a trap it it could be a trap right really throughout the whole Hebrew Bible I would say like we as Christians kind of want to immediately see like all the Jesus foreshadowing in there Um, and I'm I'm not saying that's necessarily wrong to do ever but first and foremost, we need to understand these texts on their own terms. Right. I think to, to be, be as faithful to them as possible when we read and interpret them is. And so with the prophets, 
like take a minute and go to bibleodyssey.org, which is run by the Society of Biblical Literature and uh, by, by Bible scholars. And just like, these are like short little articles that you can read in like three minutes, just like mm-hmm. a quick intro to the prophet to tell you when he was writing, what, like, whether it was it exile or was he in the Northern Kingdom of Israel or the Southern Kingdom of Judah and just give you a little bit of background so you can try to understand these, these writings on their own terms. Um, and what they were speaking to because again like this is kind of affected by our idea of prophecy as a future for a future telling kind of thing um and so obviously oh well its main thing was about jesus and like no that's not why the hebrew people preserved it right right they preserved it because it spoke to them right at that time right and, um and the, and in the in the centuries that followed um so understand them on their own terms. And then you can understand how the early followers of Jesus interpreted these prophets to apply to them and their movement. But don't jump right there. Right. That, that doesn't, that, that's, that's not faithful to the, to the text themselves, mm-hmm. uh, to the prophets themselves, I don't think. That's a really wise reminder. Yeah. And, you know. Uh, you have an ally in me, so I, I think that <laughs> I'm going to do my best. Out about that. <laughs> yeah, I, I do, uh, you know, Advent is a season of waiting. And, you know, uh, when it's at its best, we're patient and we slow down and reflective. And in our culture, we like, we just want to go straight to Christmas, you know, like Thanksgiving happens and we're listening to Christmas songs already, right? Yeah. Uh, so I, I see a little bit of that tendency to jump the gun in our broader cultural context so I really appreciate that reminder to slow down let's read these texts on their own terms uh, as we prepare ourselves for the Christmas season that's still that's not here yet but still coming so yeah this has been such a great conversation Amanda any you know anything we haven't touched upon or anything that you know you think it would be a crime if we didn't (laughs) <laughs> at least give a nod. I mean, we have covered, you know, thousands of years of history and, you know, uh, untold numbers of words. Uh, I mean, this has been a monumental undertaking and you have done marvelously so far. <laughs> you have summarized the entire Hebrew scriptures, at least, in under two hours. <laughs> I'm regularly asked to teach a 15-week semester on the whole Bible, and sometimes the Bible and, like, culture, so, you know, like... Yeah, it's not um, enough. <laughs> it's not enough, and, you know, yeah. it's what we have, so... Yeah, well the, well, the gift of this is it's, I think, given us a good framework so that when we do encounter First Samuel or Exodus or Amos we have a, you know, sort of a, um, a, a framework with which to put it into. And so it's not just, oh, we're preaching on Amos this week and then totally disconnected. We're preaching on Isaiah yeah. next week. So I hope this has been helpful for folks listening in or watching. Yeah. Yeah. And I would just kind of say like my parting reminder, um, circling back to my, my, my pillars of biblical interpretation, um, um, be in community and conversation with people about these texts with people from different um, social locations. Mm. Your, right. Like, you know, whether that be in person or um, like pick up, you know, pick up Google 
articles by people of a different race than yourself, a different gender, sexual orientation than yourself. Um, kind of, I, th- I think it's particularly like, you know, like, like me, I'm, I'm a person of a lot of privilege. I'm white. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm financially comfortable. Um, I'm, you know, I'm high, I, I have a lot of like formal higher education. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, I have a lot of privilege and, um, and being, an important part of being honest about that is engaging with um, who who don't and amplifying their work and using mm. it to really help me um, have a different perspective on the biblical text so that I can um, so that I can continue like understanding it on a on a deeper level because one thing that I think we do see throughout the biblical text is this um, this call to uplift um that god you know the god is on the side of the marginalized and um and that we who profess to follow god are responsible for also being on the side of the marginalized and following them and listening to them and learning from them so um so i think we as people of privilege need to be extra intentional about that. So, um, so find those dialogue partners, buy their books, <laughs> you know, download their podcast and support them on Patreon. Um, you know, be in, uh, be in, um, be in intentional dialogue and support yeah. with people, um, coming from different perspectives than yours, because that's just going to make it, make the interpretation and experience all the richer. That's right. We're, we're reading it in community as part of a larger conversation. And we're thinking about our context and the context of others. You got it. <laughs> I, w- I will say, <laughs> yeah, you got, yeah, I learned something today. Um, yeah, I will say part of my regular practice of preparing for preaching is to read diverse voices. I try really hard not just to, to read white male scholars every week when I prepare to preach. And so if folks are listening and want resources, I can certainly point you in the right direction. But that's such a good parting word, Amanda. Podcast listeners, if you're still listening and we're so grateful that you made it this far, you will definitely give you plus five points on your final exam. Reverend Dr. Amanda Miller, it has been such an honor and privilege and a lot of fun too to have this conversation. We'll look forward to being in touch. Thanks. Thanks, Art. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye.